Hello and welcome to this episode of the Red Envelope, where we talk to Asia's best in innovation. Today we have with us Rabil Varaj, the CEO of Sarmayakar, a venture capital firm that focuses on investing into early stage Pakistani startups. Sarmayakar is based out of Lahore. Rabil has had an illustrious career with degrees from University of Oxford and MIT. He then joined Morgan Stanley's M&A team. For the last eight years or so, Rabil has been involved as an investor, advisor, and board member in several startups. Thank you, Rabil, for joining us today. Thank you very, very much for having me. Great. So after your journey with an MIT, Oxford, Morgan Stanley, you've now back to Pakistan. So you clearly should see a huge opportunity there. So tell us more about it. Absolutely. So the background to returning to Pakistan um, actually goes back before my career started. And there was always this really belief in, in the country. And um, I have to say, it's, um, I've had like a fairly comfortable upbringing and uh, obviously was very lucky to attend certain institutions from an education perspective and uh, also get experience at uh, renowned institutions. So there was also a sense of responsibility um, that had accumulated over the years, uh, which um, overall ultimately translated into the return back. But I have to say that if there wasn't uh, a commensurate economic opportunity that was available, it would have been very difficult for me to make that transition back. So even though it's my own country, I love my people, I love being here, uh, ultimately, the, all the ends had to make sense for it to come back, which is why um, the emphasis on the economic opportunity in Pakistan takes even more importance. And in light of what I see as a perception reality gap that continues to persist, at least in the international community, and particularly in the investment community uh, against Pakistan, um, that has created a, a great opportunity for uh, not only venture capitalists, but just generally investors that are looking to uh, get exposure to the country and capitalize on what are really favorable demographics. I wouldn't want to bore you with too much detail, but 210 plus million population, roughly two thirds of which is under 30 years old, and a, a certain change in consumption patterns which the country and the population is undergoing. Uh, which is manifesting itself in uh, moves towards digital sources and generally businesses which are trying to solve a lot of local problems that exist with local solutions. And that's where the opportunity to set up a venture capital platform um, came to fruition because the gap that exists and continues to exist at the very early stage from a provision of capital perspective is quite stark. And anyone that does provide that capital, I believe, will stand to do well in the coming years. And in aspects where the capital comes with some form of value add, be it by bringing best practices from other ecosystems, bringing knowledge, connecting entrepreneurs, or having, in Pakistan's particular case, Connecting the diaspora of Pakistanis, which have done very well in their respective fields in different parts of the world, but 
creating a bridge for them to start contributing back some of that knowledge, talent, and also capital. So that's how Sarmayakar came about. And that also then prompted the move back because the realization was that this can only be done on the ground, full time, with full focus. It's fascinating. A lot of times when we look at Southeast Asia or just Asia um, in general, there's a lot of local efforts, if you will, right? As you were referring to um, taking care of local challenges and having local solutions. And um, therein it lies the opportunities. So we see it in Thailand, we see it in Singapore, we see a lot of that in China. But um, in reference to what you were talking about, the perception reality gap in, in Pakistan, right? So it's not often that we hear about what's going on in Pakistan and what's going on in ecosystem and opportunities, rightly so, like what you say. So can you tell us a little bit more about the ecosystem and how mature it is in, from a fintech perspective in particular, from payments and digital money? You mentioned a little bit about going digital. So what are the opportunities there and how does the ecosystem look like? The ecosystem in Pakistan is still very nascent, uh, and a few factors have contributed to that. Um, I alluded to the Pakistanis that were in the diaspora, that um, for one reason or the other, and this perception reality uh, gap to an extent uh, can be blamed for it, um, that diaspora did not return to Pakistan over the last decade or decade and a half, which when compared to India, Indonesia, Nigeria, uh, was very different. And uh, I believe that that factor contributes quite a bit to progressing any ecosystem around the world. So that was one factor which I believe has contributed to the ecosystem still being nascent. But the bigger factor is in fact that Pakistan is a mobile first economy. And the entire venture ecosystem has predominantly based, uh, been based around that mobile-first uh, approach um, uh, to the extent that B2B businesses have, for example, not had a similar level of traction as some of the B2C businesses have. And in the country, 3G and 4G broadband connectivity was only provided in 2015. So we've only had really the last three years going towards four years when some of these businesses have had the opportunity to demonstrate traction, to acquire users uh, and to monetize their offering. Uh, but what has happened since 2012 is the creation of a number of incubators, accelerators, a host of government initiatives, both to train um, college graduates in digital skills um, and also to promote entrepreneurship overall, have contributed to this setting, uh, uh, instilling this notion in the youth of the country that entrepreneurship is a viable career choice. And that itself has taken a few years, which now is demonstrating itself in the first, or in some cases, the second or third ventures that the youth of the country is trying out of college. And Together with some of these initiatives, um, uh, general penetration increase of internet, um, lowering of smartphone prices together with data packages in the country, um, all contributed to 
many of the building blocks being in place. And as I alluded to earlier, the one tip missing piece was capital. So if I was to characterize where we are right now, we are still in at best, like, you know, end of first or uh, early second innings uh, to use uh, a U.S. reference. Um, and, but the opportunity is quite tremendous. And, and one of the opportunities is really around financial inclusion. So if I was to give you one metric, if you were to sum up all bank accounts, all credit cards, mobile wallets and money transfer accounts, we probably get to maybe 35 million in total in Pakistan out of a population of 210. So the vast majority of the population is unbanked, not connected or, uh, or included in any sort of a financial net. Um, now, clearly those people are also not the ones paying any taxes. Uh, part of that is just linked to lack of data and lack of connectivity uh, and financial inclusion. The one thing that the one connected store of value that people do have are maybe their cell phones and the SIM cards that are contained within them, which carry nominal denominations, but do carry some sort of a store of value. Uh, so the idea around trying to leverage technology or the cell phone penetration to bring people into the net has attracted quite a few startups trying targeting that segment. Um, and uh, I would say that they are still, again, in the early stages, uh, but the opportunity uh, over the entire ecosystem and broadly in fintech uh, covering many aspects such as payments, transfers, gateways, there are many sub-segments where the opportunity remains. And given the size that I've been mentioning, uh, each of those sub-segments is large enough um, for a vertical leader of their own and for a potential venture capitalists to generate good returns because of the size of the market that startups can go after and potentially capture. What we're seeing also from an ecosystem perspective is also the government uh, taking active steps uh, to uh, uh, prioritize financial inclusion together with help of a lot of DFIs, development finance institutions and donor agencies. One example I can give is um, there's a specific fintech challenge uh, held every year uh, with the mandate of financial inclusion which is uh, held by Karandas, which is uh, backed by UK's uh, Department for in, in International Development. Uh, so there's various different initiatives that are promoting uh, early stage businesses that are targeting these segments. But from an overall ecosystem perspective, we're still in its nascency. Uh, also from a regulatory perspective, it's um, still early and we're only adopt, starting to adopt regulation that would level the playing field uh, to use that code. Um, one example is that about 10 days ago, Pakistan came up with the first uh, electronic money um, regulation. So electronic money institution, um, which has uh, again, at least laid out a framework for com uh, companies, businesses that are targeting um, uh, that segment. Uh, we would expect additional regulation um, or at least um, clarity around further sub-segments. Uh, but 
the challenges remain and that's why the opportunity to find solutions is there that's very interesting rubil um thanks so much for that uh, you touched upon two key points there um as new generations start to look at entrepreneurship as a viable career option i think the startup ecosystem should uh, pick up within the country I mean, this i've seen happen within india I mean, i'm sure you've seen uh, generations of entrepreneurs now over the last 15 years or so we've seen quite a lot of um, uh, big names emerge in india so i'm sure that can happen with pakistan as well the other point you touched upon is uh, uh, financial inclusion um i'd like to talk about islamic fintech sharia fintech and where pakistan is placed when compared to ecosystems that exist in say southeast asia uh, malaysia for example or uh, the middle east and uh, there is also quite a lot of traction i'm sure you know in the uk and europe uh, i just want to understand your thoughts on how uh, pakistan is placed to exploit the true trillion sharia market that's a great question uh, and my answer is twofold where pakistan currently stands it's almost non existent from a fintech sharia fintech perspective the second aspect of my answer is whether there is an opportunity specifically around sharia fintech i think a tremendous one why because some of the best performing banks in pakistan traditional banks over the last few years have been the ones that have a certain leaning towards islamic finance and um overall in the country the sentiment um around uh, islamic solutions or solutions that do incorporate at least what people perceive to be uh, sharia compliant um aspects uh, tend to do well so i would imagine that it should translate into uh, an interesting opportunity um with that said of course um we haven't really seen any uh, solutions tried out at a national scale for us to really be able to form an opinion around how adoption of such solutions would work um, but i think uh, that's really driven by the lack of uh, overall development in fintech i would say because again beyond just the basic wallets and and providing some sort of interoperability with the banks and vendors that are present in the country we haven't really seen a transformative solution that brings people away from cash um even now e-commerce and various other uh, digital consumption results in 90% plus cash and delivery so um provision of sharia fintech solutions is i would imagine um, a step that comes even after basic fintech solutions where people get used to pay for uh, everyday consumption maybe savings maybe insurance products um, using money that is stored on some digital wallet or is connected in some way and not in paper form So uh, you mentioned about interoperability challenges between um, banks and uh, 
potential fintechs reveal. Um, we've seen that with uh, Yieldus, for example, where when we go out to have uh, or set up partnerships with some of the bigger uh, Islamic uh, financial institutions, uh, we found that the operational processes were pretty um, outdated almost legacy. Um, and uh, that itself provides, makes a big challenge for some of the fintechs to expand um, into that space. Um, and do you see that being a, being an obstruction or an obstacle rather uh, with with the Pakistani ecosystem? Because um, I'm hoping there will be lots of learnings that will come up um, by the time the ecosystem locally matures. Um, and uh, and you should be able to kind of accelerate it more better than the other uh, parts of the world. In theory, yes, but in in practice and in reality, unfortunately, ban banks in Pakistan continue to be dinosaurs in that respect. And every single bank will have an innovation challenge or two. But the reality is that most of them probably can't spell the word uh, because the mindset is very different. The mindset is very much that. Uh, we remain custodians of cash, we remain um, the decision makers and if you are a promising startup, we might offer you connectivity with our bank account so that anyone that has a bank account with us can feed in money into a mobile wallet that is connected with us. Now, obviously that doesn't really speak much of uh, interoperability. And also limits it down to individual banks trying to position it according to their offering. Um, the reality is also that um, there is little incentive for banks to innovate because they've gotten drunk on um, lending to the government. Like you know, government yields, um, like you know, yields on government bonds are are remarkable. So that uh, lending to the private sector is a challenge to begin with, and the more um, disruptive the idea or the notion of uh, uh, an up-and-coming company or an upstart which is looking to um, append what is the status quo is something that doesn't really go down well even though uh, every bank will have representatives at entrepreneurship conferences and in theory be seen uh, to be working with a lot of these startups so it's it's a little bit of a um, of a status quo continuing um, situation unless there is really a shakeup. And I think one of the attempts from the government, as I alluded to earlier, is this recent um, uh, electronic money institution uh, regulation and framework that has come out. Uh, let's see how um, different banks respond to it. Uh, but uh, at least so far, uh, the question that you asked, whether it's challenging for startups to have like you know both support and like work uh, with traditional banks that are set up here um, absolutely we would like to give a mention to our creative partner tremendousness tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking information design and storytelling to help organizations explore and innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. I almost feel like I'm going to have to quote you saying banks remain dinosaurs. That definitely caught, caught my attention. <laughs> 
we can probably reuse that sentence elsewhere, but um, I don't think I, I hear that say it so out loud. Um, so, so it's interesting, though, because it alludes to something I wanted to ask you about, which you had started talking about, is what incentives do they have to innovate, to change, right? Because if you're so used to a certain way of life, certain way of paying and conducting business and a safe and secure and, and all that. So what is their incentive to change? Now, you talked a little bit about the electronic money institution, the new framework and regulation. What else do you think um, will policymakers be able to do to create that environment to foster startups and fintech to work with banks? Or is it just one of those, it will take time to change? I think I want to say uh, that there is now over the last three to four years an increased emphasis on accelerating some of that change, some of that transition. But there is just a, a lack of clarity what to transition to. Uh, and I think that's why a little bit of the status quo continues to persist. What I mean by that is there's a strong drive and a lot of people question why there are thousands of branches, bank branches in the country, right? And the, the measure that is still advertised are like, you know, how many brick and mortar branches we have, how many physical ATMs are, are present, etc. cetera. Um, it, the, the question that is posed or like the retort to that is what is an alternative? Um, and the problem becomes that for most of the fintechs, if you're sponsoring a, a certain fair or a concert and you have a QR code, which you, um, consumers can scan and get a discount, uh, it works like a charm on that day. And everyone downloads it and utilizes that um, um, discount. But the problem is on the next day, their use cases just evaporate. Uh, and they have this money sitting in there, which then eventually they have to figure out how to get out of their wallets, um, mobile wallets, and use as cash because predominantly cash continues to rain. So the, the problem is both um, banks being a little bit unwilling to change because they continue to make good money off of um, other aspects, and B, um, the government not wanting to um, be too quick in taking certain decisions, which, for example, remove cash from the system or, or uh, force banks into, um, uh, into like innovating uh, without really having a clear idea of what that looks like or where does that take us. Um, so just to, for example, state one, um, one example, which is not linked directly to banks, but one big challenge in Pakistan is to get paid as a freelance worker by an international institution or individual. Uh, so, for example, typically freelancers would use something like PayPal. Now, PayPal isn't in Pakistan, um, and it's quite a challenge to actually um, get paid in Pakistan unless you have uh, some sort of a bank account and either keep decide to keep the money outside or um, have to do it through an institution which already has something set up there. So it's quite a pain. And you would imagine that as the country which contributes, uh, I think last I saw, the fourth largest by number of freelancers on platforms like Upwork. Um, that's a big problem. Uh, and uh, the, there is still no solution. 
typically the government would say, yes, we are trying to work with institutions like PayPal to address their concerns. Um, the response from these institutions is, well, it's not really just regulation driven, it's also a commercial opportunity driven. Uh, and the commercial opportunity itself uh, requires stability of policy making and um, or limited political changes, etc., posing any kind of risks around the potential for making a commercial return. That, of course, in Pakistan's case is very hard to get and results in all of these institutions staying away. So what has to be done is um, what we call in our local language uh, a jugar, which essentially stands for a hack, effectively figure out a hack around this, a solution around this. Um, uh, and the ones that, of course, are more conscious of corporate governance, um, keep it all through official channels, um, which effectively means at some point touching a bank, uh, either abroad or within Pakistan. Um, and others uh, figure out ways of collecting that money and receiving it through either family or informal money transfer channels. And that's where another problem comes in, um, that if you use one of the traditional money transfer towns, the cost is so high that it is absurd in, in this uh, day and age. Um, Ten odd percent for uh, Western Union money transfer. Uh, a lot of the other international payment transfer platforms will just not transfer to you uh, unless it's coming from your named account in a foreign country um, and it's going to a named account in your own country. Now, for people who um, are, are privileged in some sense, like me, who have um, account in, in different places because I spent a lot of time abroad, um, this is not a consideration. But I also don't make up really the mass segment. I think that's what we need to find solutions for. And um, it's not that the government um, is uh, can't sleep, you know, like individuals who are decision makers can't sleep at night because they're worried about solving this problem. But there is, again, a recognition that something needs to be done. Um, and uh, it's a lot of times such policy making and decision making uh, falls uh, a victim to individuals that are part of certain committees or task forces, as is the favorite thing to do in, in this new government. And, and uh, the conversations never really go beyond that because one has to use political capital and, and to really be able to push through certain things. And because the ecosystem overall remains small, um, it doesn't have the same weight as, for example, textile uh, mill owners do or, or real estate barons or other more traditional business sectors. So it's a little bit of, um, of yes, there is recognition. Um, obviously not as fast progress as uh, stakeholders in the ecosystem would like, but I also feel it's inevitable um, that it will happen because um, we are seeing some of those forces at play um, just, um, just kind of like, you know, bulldoze what were traditional ways of doing things. And uh, maybe one example I can give, which is not in FinTech, but ride hailing um, has done really well in the country because mass transportation is a huge issue. So either people wait for 50 years for the government to sort out those issues or they adopt solutions like Uber, Kareem, and um, now recently actually a business beat backs, uh, which is similar to Indonesia's Gojek, 
uh, called Bikea. Um, so that's really how we're seeing um, some of the forces of transformation really come about. And um, where it, the convenience, affordability jives with what is ultimately a large population with um, a, a, a still a, a low GDP per capita, I think that's where we're seeing the traction for the businesses as well. It's fascinating you brought up um, transportation and ride hailing because that's something similar we see in Southeast Asia, right? The, such as the company called Grab, where they started yeah. off as a ride hailing and now they're expanding into FinTech because of the segment of the market they're serving. And they touched upon, you know, a lot of the drivers um, and their customers are unbanked and they need financial services. They, they're micro-entrepreneurs. And so you sort of see that, that evolution, the trajectory, if you will, that, that's starting off in Southeast Asia. And hopefully um, with, with time, the same will, will happen and transpire in, in Pakistan? The Absolutely. In fact, um, uh, it, this might sound like a shameless plug, but Bikea is uh, going along the same lines. Gojek, for example, is more a payments company now than even traditional ride hailing, um, so similar to Grab, as you pointed out. And um, soon, hopefully, uh, you will hear about Bikea Pay. And at Bikea Pay, what we're trying to do is also um, address this bridge, this transition from cash and delivery to uh, the digital space. Because what Bikea does for, uh, in addition to ride hailing, is also hyperlocal logistics um, associated with, uh, uh, with that. And uh, if you're doing cash and delivery for, let's say, e-commerce suppliers, um, you can set up, we're trying to set up a network of over-the-counter agents, um, which uh, are effectively mom and pop and corner shops, which can maybe also become transacting agents um, for exchange of cash. And if all of that can be in a Bikea kind of like an okay wallet, then um, that is something that we are trying to explore. So, so you're absolutely correct. I think ultimately a lot of these um, um, hooks, initial hooks, uh, are ultimately translating into some sort of a payments platform. Um, and the same goes for Kareem, which has recently been acquired by Uber, uh, at least was announced. And so I think a lot of fintech opportunities uh, or businesses uh, or more accurately in Pakistan case, business models will emerge from some of these early businesses that have already come up. Um, and we've seen also the interest of investors from abroad, particularly large Chinese tech companies uh, in this space. Um, and they've approached it from a few different angles. Um, there is a, a big, uh, fairly large microfinance bank which um, is maybe about 15, 16 years old, that was invested into by Ant Financial, uh, part of the Alibaba Group. And, um, and again, the idea is uh, to go after some of the plumbing assets that are there that provide a base um, of either loans that are already outstanding um, or a customer base that is using a platform for uh, payments or transfers 
uh, and to build on top of that other solutions that increase the, and, uh, the number of people that are included in the net. So uh, I think you're right. I, I, I'm sorry I took it off on a little bit of a tangent, uh, but uh, the idea that some of these businesses that we're seeing, which are right now maybe targeted at a different segment, um, either pivot or add on to themselves a platform associated with payments or uh, some sort of a financial technology. Um, I think the possibility of that happening is very high. Ravel, you touched upon really uh, two interesting points are there. One is uh, Jugad innovation. As, um, as most of these emerging economies, uh, they don't have a formal ecosystem. They have to, they can't just knock on the door, they just have to break through the door using Jugad, I guess. Um, the other point that you highlighted, or almost a one-liner for me, is uh, uh, from a FinTech perspective, it's more the business models, not just the businesses. Uh, so there's a huge uh, difference, uh, distinction between the two, I think. Um, and uh, you highlighted that, and that's that's pretty interesting. Um, I'm sure uh, with China's uh, inspiration, I'm sure there's quite a lot of these business models that will sneak into, uh, or not sneak into, perhaps uh, emerge out of uh, these developing uh, economies. Um, on that note, uh, we've spoken quite a lot about uh, the ecosystems, uh, the, the opportunities in Pakistan. We've not touched upon how Submarkers plays or rather what your plans are to exploit this ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. So right now what we have is our first um, flagship fund, which we're investing across series seed and series A stages. Um, and uh, the idea is very much to become um, the preferred partner uh, of choice, both for local founders and also for international investors and entrepreneurs looking to expand into Pakistan. Our thesis, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is, is really based around being a bridge and not only for risk capital coming into this segment in, in Pakistan, but also best practices and domain expertise from around the world. Uh, what we don't profess to be is um, to make uh, Pakistan the hub for all next big innovative breakthroughs, because uh, frankly, it's just not set up for that. But what we also don't do is we don't limit the notion of innovation to just that. I think it's about finding that local solution to a, a problem that continues to exist. And uh, as we see some of these businesses emerge and like you know, the interactions we've had, the gap that was identified was really at the very early stages of these businesses. And part of that gap is lack of exposure of the founders. And we think that from our experience and from having invested in entrepreneurs and around the world, there is a lot of learning that um, uh, we can help them bridge. And that's really the focus to get involved at the earliest of stages, work with these entrepreneurs through uh, those initial uh, tough few years, and then help facilitate, bring, um, bring together follow-on capital rounds, um, uh, help them with hiring, um, try to uh, assist with 
joint business development, uh, across the portfolio, synergies, uh, network, both locally and abroad, and take them to a stage where larger ticket investors, uh, both local and international, can then provide the follow-on capital that can enable these entrepreneurs to go on and make the next iconic companies in the country. Uh, we have already seen a couple of these companies emerge. Um, obviously, we trail um, India and uh, Indonesia by many, many years. But uh, the belief is, uh, and consistent with the notion that technology leapfrogs, um, I don't think it will take us 10 or 12 years to get to where India is right now. Uh, it might take us four or five. And that by that time, yes, India and other ecosystems might be further advanced. But I feel that right now we're at the early stage. And that's why getting in at the seed or Series A level could be interesting from a return perspective as well, uh, uh, if I put my purely VC hat on. That's great. And uh, thanks for all the feedback and the, uh, rather the answers, I guess. So thanks for making time it's been a it's been a great uh, experience talking to you and learning about the uh, pakistani ecosystem um, yeah so thank you so much uh, absolutely thank you so much for having me on and i just want to say one thing in the end and and this is also what helped me raise the fund um, uh, i can sit here and, and say all these things uh, i i have um, spoken about pakistan at many different places but the best way to uh, really understand and get to know Pakistan and the opportunity here is to pay a visit. And so I just want to extend this offer out there. Uh, please uh, do take me up on that and let us host you. And if there's others that are listening to this podcast that are interested in the venture opportunity in Pakistan, um, we would be very happy to facilitate that. And um, come and see for yourself what the opportunity and the excitement is all about. Be careful what, what you say. Um, <laughs> I know. So, I'm, I, I'm I never say no to an offer to, to go see somewhere else. I mean, that, that's part of what this whole thing is about, right? It's to facilitate exchange of ideas around the world so we can make the ecosystem better. Absolutely. And it's not just a blue offer. We, in fact, have on May 2nd to May 5th, our first annual summit in the north of the country, which is an absolutely beautiful place. In fact, uh, it's the only region, it's the region in the world with the highest concentration of peaks, of mountains above uh, 8,000 uh, meters, I think. But anyway, the offer stands, uh, do consider it, and uh, hope to see you in Pakistan at some point. Cheers, Rabil. Thank you so much. <laughs>